0: All right, let's do a lightning round. Favorite captain?
1: Crap. This is bad <laughs> for lightning round. Um, knee-jerk reaction, Picard.
0: Okay. Favorite series? Uh,
1: DS9? Yeah, gosh, I think I have to say that. Yeah, DS9. Starship? Enterprise D? Planet. Um, I guess earth in the next gen slash ds9 series interesting yeah
0: i want to dig a little bit more on that why yeah. why earth because star trek is all about going beyond earth and going to strange new worlds yeah. But you said earth i I'm like very curious
1: yeah i like <laughs> i mean i don't know a we live here so there's hometown pride <laughs> <laughs> um as, as a lot of people have said the The grand vision of Star Trek was like every kid could read, nobody was hungry, nobody was wanting, right? There was this post scarcity economy. We figured out all of our problems. Well, maybe not all of our problems. We still seem to hire bad people to be admirals. But, um, but as a civilization, we've we've fixed all of our problems. And so I love this idea of like what our planet could be. And it took a long time for Star Trek to like visit Earth, and give it like a more serious look. There's like we'll always have Paris or whatever. Um, but it's like earth through the holodeck it's not really earth but it took a while for star trek and next gen to like go back and visit earth like um after picard's incident with the borg he goes home to uh, and but home is this transient thing for him he lives on a on a on a ship and so he goes home to his brothers and his family's wine estate in france and i love that i love that he goes home to this like agricultural community this rural place which is kind of like where I grew up in this rural I mean I didn't grow up on a farm but I had friends with orchards and there were cows across the street and then horses when they decided cows were too stinky and I finally grew up in this sort of agricultural rural community and then sort of went to the big city and, and that really resonated with me and I really liked I always liked how San Francisco was portrayed throughout the sort of next gen DS9 Voyager series and I love that Starfleet headquarters was a waste treatment facility that's the set they used was a waste treatment facility um, just because it had a cool sort of sci-fi look and probably it was cheap to film there
0: <laughs> that's an awesome um, answer wow yeah did not expect that out of a lightning round but
1: that's not very lightning i'm, I'm failing There you go already. no it's yeah. all good
0: it's a it's a giant <laughs> thunderstorm of excellent Explor- <laughs> yeah <laughs> Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. This is Mike Waugh, your host, and today my guest is Dr. Jim Davenport, a research scientist at the University of Washington. I was originally going to have Jim on Strange New Worlds as my first interviewee of 2019, but certain events got in the way. Namely, Jim had a new baby. So, welcome to the universe, little Robbie Davenport. You don't know it yet, but one of your first great actions was screwing up my podcast order. Just kidding. This kiddo is entering the world at such a glorious time for both Star Trek and science. And today, I get to talk with his father, about all sorts of cool things that span the two. Jim is an astronomer who studies many things, but one of his biggest focuses is stellar flares. These awesome, energetic events are both beautiful and deadly, in both real life and in Star Trek. And so we'll talk about how Jim learns about these phenomena, and how they might impact your life. And then we'll get to Star Trek Discovery, and I'll ask Jim, a longtime Trekkie, how he's liking the twists and the turns of the new show. But before we get to all of that, we're going to get to know Jim a little bit more, and learn about his own science outreach project, his Astro Vlog, which I was a part of last year. Welcome to Strange New Worlds. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Welcome to my ready room. <laughs> it's a wonderful ready room. I've seen it multiple times yeah. on your astro vlog that you have. That's right. No fish tank.
1: No fish tank. Right.
0: But, yeah. That's okay. We yeah. can draw.
1: We can draw a fish on the board.
0: Okay. <laughs> Are you good at drawing? Because I'm not. I'm not. I'm here. There's my fish. That's a beautiful fish. Thank you. <laughs> it kind of looks like the fish from the Orville. I don't know if you. It you does kind of. Like,
1: yeah. We'll put a third mm-hmm. fin on it, and then it's there. That's the Orville. There we go. <laughs> Is the Orville in canon for your podcast? Is uh, it in podcast canon? Like, do can we talk about the Orville?
0: I, uh, we've mentioned the Orville, okay. but um, yeah, it's, we haven't actually talked about it because I haven't watched it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I haven't watched I it. I haven't watched the Orville.
1: It's actually. I hate that it's so good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel like I'll have the same reaction, so that's why I don't really want to yeah. watch it, but I should. I, um, do, I
1: should. It's like double the sci fi to watch every week, which is a win.
0: All right, so let's get to know your history with Star Trek, Jim. Yeah. Uh, how did you discover Star Trek, and how much of it have you explored?
1: I discovered Star Trek um, as a as a young person, uh, probably probably by age uh, or by grade, probably by grade like one or two. Like I was a little kid, um, somewhere in like first or second grade. Next Gen would have been in its mid run when I was like in kindergarten, first grade, 90, 91, 92. Um, So it would have been like peak excellent next gen, right? Seasons four, five, six are like, so like I think like peak next gen. And that would have been going on right as I was in like second or third grade.
0: Well, now you know how to calculate Jim's age. But the fascinating thing to me is how much this parallels my own Star Trek story. I discovered Trek when I was a young boy. Displaced by just a few years from gym when I found it, TNG was in its final season, and I first fell in love with Star Trek late at night as I curled up on the couch next to my dad. Jims scene is pretty much exactly the same
1: and I vividly remember Star Trek coming on somewhere around bedtime-ish you know so I have kids now. bedtime for my toddler is like. Seven thirty, eight o'clock, so I can project. So, you know, eight eight o'clock somewhere in that time frame is probably about when Next Gen was coming on on local television, and my dad would watch it. And so there was this. Okay, you can stay up and watch like a little bit of Next Gen with me. Both my parents would sit down and watch. You know, they they had their own TV watching preferences, and this was one of the things that they both would, both would watch. Um, my dad was very into it, and so I remember even as a very young age being very fixated with like Mr. Commander, Mr. Data, and. As kind of a geeky young kid, an awkward little young kid, emulating some of Data's, you know, sort of early season tics that he would have, you know, the little head nods and the strange tics that, that uh, Brent Spiner was putting into the character. My mom said that I would do that when like playing on the playground with other kids, um, and that became one of the early fixations. So like, along with becoming very interested in science as a little kid, and rocks and stars and plants and things. Um, Star Trek became sort of a natural extension of that. So at a very young age, I was just into Data and Next Gen.
0: I also had this weird thing for Data. I swear, I'm not making this up. The very first episode of Star Trek that I ever watched was Masks, a seventh season TNG episode in which Data gets hijacked by an ancient computer program. Now, Masks is an episode that most people consider, uh... Not Star Trek's finest hour. In fact, it was once reviewed as, quote, incomprehensible, impenetrable, and incoherent, end quote. So my Star Trek watching could only get better from there. But I was just a little kid. I had no idea that this was a crappy episode. It was just an episode of this wild adventure show, and I was being transfixed by this weird, metallic being. Anyway, that's enough of me. Let's get back to Jim.
1: And then how much have I explored? Um, I think all of it, though I have this like lingering fear that there's an episode that I haven't seen. Do you know what I mean? Like I watched through Next Gen again in college, uh, pseudo legally where, you know, you download all the stuff and watch it on your computer. Uh, please don't sue me, Paramount. Um, <laughs> and I watched through it religiously in college. And that's, that's when I got, I think, really serious about it was I went from just being a very big Star Trek fan to being like, very knowledgeable because I had a lot of unencumbered time by myself like during the summers when I was living by myself in college when my girlfriend was gone and my friends were gone and I watched through like binge watched multiple times and I realized I was missing an episode I think it was like Lower Decks too it was like a good episode Mm. I was missing the Next Gen episode and so my My mind is sort of blown that I realize, oh, my God, there's a whole episode. So I have this fear that there's something I haven't seen. Yeah. Um, But I've gone back and watched everything from original series. I haven't watched animated series. That's okay. Neither have I. Since I was, like, a kid.
0: (laughs) Oh, Um, so you actually have watched it. I have watched it.
1: (laughs) I think my parents rented it on VHS for me Uh um, one summer when we were home. And so I have watched it, but I don't remember it. Um, So I haven't watched it through adult eyes.
0: Yeah, I have... Only a few episodes of the animated series under my belts. It's um, it's hard to get through sometimes. Yeah. But we've got new animated series on, on the way. Do so, we? Yeah, yeah. So there are two in development. Whoa. Um, there's going to be one called Star Trek Lower Decks, if I'm remembering the name correctly. Wow. So it's all about those ensigns and cadets who are scrubbing yeah. the plasma conduits and <laughs> life from their perspective. Right. And then there's going to be one that I think is going to go on Nickelodeon, and it's going to wow. be geared towards kids. I haven't heard this at all. This is amazing. Yeah, I'm excited so, about this. So your kids will grow up with a whole new generation of Star Trek. I'm so, so well, jealous of them. Be. Well, it should be. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, Jim, you were recently at Emerald City
1: Comic-Con. My first Comic-Con. It was a fascinating experience, yeah.
0: Can you um, tell me what you were doing there?
1: Yeah. So I was asked to come be on a panel for another podcast So shout out to the Science Bar podcast, which Natalie Hinkle and collaborators run, which is kind of like the drunk history show. They get scientists drunk, and then we talk about science. And so everybody would bring an article to talk about, and then we would stumble through it, and hopefully hilarity would would ensue and the audience would enjoy it. So I think that's what happened. I think we got drunk enough to be amusing. I think I'm amusing, even sober. (laughs) Um, And then uh, we talked about science. The article I brought was all about space flight so it was very on brand
0: that sounds like a lot of fun, and I'm sure you plugged your Astro Vlog at the um, the Comic-Con. Of course, yeah, I, uh, I got a film of that too, I think I have the
1: whole panel as well on video, so I have a lot of video to edit right now, which, That's awesome. which is a good problem to have.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's plug your Astro Vlog here on Strange New Worlds. Awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about how that started, and what your goals are with it, and where you've taken it so far?
1: So, you know, full disclosure, I wasn't super knowledgeable about YouTube or the sort of YouTube vlog uh, scene uh, until my brother-in-law, David Miner, who's a music producer in town, he started doing some vlogging and getting into that sort of scene. And And I looked around to the science world and said, we have a whole, like, there are science vloggers, but there's not a bunch of astronomy vloggers. There are astronomy channels, but nobody really showing, like, what a day in the life of an astronomer is like. And there are some people who do lifestyle vlogs about, like, this is everything I ate, and this is my family, and this is my home. And, like, you know, my food isn't that interesting, my family's pretty normal and my home isn't that that stylish. So I thought, what's the most interesting thing that I have to show? And that is my my job. Like even though I spend all my days around planetary scientists and astronomers and uh, physicists, most people when I meet them, they say, it never even occurred to me that astronomer was a job. You know? And and so demystifying what it's like to be an astronomer and be a practicing scientist, especially in this age of difficult funding and tenuous grasps of facts and the truth in our society Um, and this portrayal of scientists as being very disconnected and very like elitist and very unrelatable i thought this is a time and this is a space and this is a medium that i would enjoy working in and i've always had an interest in photography and film anyways just artistically and so um And so why not, why not make a video series about what it's like to be an astronomer? And so this started at one of our big conferences, the American Astronomical Society's annual winter meeting in DC, uh, now uh, a year and a half ago. And I did a daily video there, which was a lot of energy to do. Since then I've done weekly videos, roughly weekly videos about my comings and goings and my doings of being a scientist and hoping to share what it's like, both for the general public and also just for people you know, university students and college students and graduate students who might think like, do I really want to go on in this life? Is this something I really want to do? Um, Hoping to just show a realistic view about what it's like.
0: That's really awesome. I, I love this effort to humanize science and to bring the scientists back into science because I think the general public, like you said, has this warped perspective of where science comes from and it's just this list of facts but who came up with that, and what were the struggles that they went through to actually achieve this knowledge? It's, it's a very important story to tell. So, you
1: know, one, of the, my, one of my first goals with the video series, which I have not met, was I really wanted to show the moment of discovery. Mm. Right? Because there is this moment when you're a scientist. Well, you hope that as a scientist there is this moment where you're like, Ah, here's my data. Yes, data, data, data. Oh my gosh, here is this thing I have discovered. Or here is that thing I set out to do. Or here is the thing that surprised me. And we certainly portray that as what what happens. Like we were sitting in our lab and then all of a sudden inspiration came or or there's this moment. And I don't think it's usually as dramatic as all that. But I think there is, especially like at conferences or in discussions with people, there are these moments where you have two worldviews or two ideas about what's going on. Even if they're very similar, two people may not be on the same page. And then through discussion and through waving your hands and drawing pictures on chalkboards or, or whatever there's this moment where you realize like oh, this is what we should do or this is the truth about the universe or this is a paper we should write and then you get very excited and like lots of energy comes out of that and I really wanted to capture that like nascent moment of discovery and like show that because that is the moment that I'm living for as a scientist like in the job like that moment of like oh we did it you know like mm-hmm. there's that there's that that endorphin rush that you get or whatever hopefully uh, out of that moment and as a research scientist that's what my that's the job is trying to find that moment capture it bottle it (laughs) uh, find it and publish paper about it and then do it again and i haven't i haven't really managed to do that like that's turns out to be unless you're rolling 24 hours a day in every single meeting with every person and some people don't like being on camera it's very hard to capture that but
0: yeah i can see because i think just thinking back on those moments of discovery that, that I've had, you know, they happen in the weirdest places, like yeah. in the shower or yeah. writing on my blackboard or just typing at my computer trying to explain something to myself through words. Yeah. And those aren't necessarily times when you would think that the, the, the aha moment is going to come.
1: Yeah, it's, especially when it's like those quiet, introspective moments. Like I was working on this paper draft and all of a sudden, in mid-paragraph, it took a right turn. And that's when I understood, I understood then that's what I was really doing or whatever. Like that's, that makes it for terrible television. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, this is a good segue into your research. Sure. So you study stellar flares.
1: Yeah. That's what my work has been mostly focused on in the last few years. Yeah.
0: So Jim, what is a stellar flare?
1: So a stellar flare is essentially an explosion that happens on or right above a star's surface. And this occurs because... Very strong magnetic fields trap gas in these little filaments or these little like bands above the star. We see this on our sun, Uh, these sort of loops that go above the surface of the sun um, that have gas trapped up in there. And then if these magnetic fields get twisted and sort of snap or rearrange very rapidly, the gas will come shooting back down at the surface of the star and then basically impact the surface of the star and cause a big explosion. These are totally normal, nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. Um, except for it turns out they can be massive. The ones we see on the sun typically are small and they don't impact us at all with a big asterisk that like occasionally you do see things like the aurora Mm -hmm. and those are, those occur because material in these flares get launched off the star or in our case, the sun and hit the earth. And that while the aurora don't hurt anybody, they certainly make a dramatic show. But what if you scaled up those flares and thus the aurora that occurred by factors of a hundred or a thousand? then we might worry about, could these things actually impact life? Uh, and the answer is maybe. These giant flares, or we call them super flares, do actually occur on stars like our sun, especially when the sun was young. And they may actually have impacted life and the timescale that life can form. So there's, there's both interesting physics about how these magnetic fields are occurring on the stars and also just grand implications about what happens when the star belches out a bunch of like high-energy particles that run into your planet. And it's like putting your uh, your proto life forms into the microwave. It's not, not a very pleasant. <laughs> That's thing.
0: not good. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of these giant flares hasn't happened during our lifetimes and impacted the Earth, Earth right? But in Star Trek. Flares have caused all (coughs) sorts of havoc. In numerous Star Trek episodes, they they are shown to cause some sort of problem that the crew needs to deal with. Sometimes they interfere with technology or threaten a planet's habitability, like Mm -hmm. you just said. Or uh, on occasion, they've even been shown to destroy starships and space stations in Star Trek. Right. You know, flares seem like they are an extremely dangerous phenomenon. And in what situations... Do these giant flares occur? You said for for very young stars, right? So
1: these the biggest flares we think occur, thankfully, on young stars. So by the time that the sun is its its current age, it's kind of chilled out. So like like humans, it tends to get a little more uh, chill and relaxed as it gets, They seem to calm down as they age. Not not all people are this way, and not all stars seem to be this way either. Uh, but generally, that's that's true. I mean, a big question right now is how long does this super flare behavior occur and even if the sun is kind of more relaxed now, what is the biggest flare it could actually produce and how often? So a good thing to keep in mind is you don't need to produce a super flare to still impact human life so in the 1850s there was a very large flare that was observed that caused a massive auroral storm, so there was aurora observed as far south as New Orleans and possibly Cuba seen across most of the western hemisphere and even some uh, in possibly in Europe and in Asia. So these massive auroral storm was seen after this big flare went off. It was so big that, okay, so it was 1859, so there wasn't television, there wasn't the internet, but there was telegraph lines, and it disrupted telegraph communications worldwide, and there are even some anecdotal reports that it burned the fingers of telegraph operators who were tapping out Morse code or whatever. Wow. So if you scale this event and the impact it would have to today's world, where there are wires everywhere, there's... Power grids, there's subway lines, there's uh, little computers in your pocket. The amount of damage this would cause would be catastrophic. If this kind of flare hit Earth, it could like shut down all power, all the internet, and destroy much of the electronics that we use every single day. And there's little we could do to stop it. The impact would be tens of trillions of dollars in economic and like and real world damage as it like blew out transformers and knocked out the power everywhere. And possibly knocked aircraft out of the sky like it could shut down power systems inside aircraft. i wouldn't knock the airplanes out of the sky they would glide safely down to earth where everyone would be just fine but uh but it would be a big problem and this size of flare and the particle ejection that comes with it while it only impacts earth maybe once every century or two that's pretty often and there's nothing stopping a couple from hitting this century for example so it's like earthquakes you don't know exactly when they're going to happen and they can happen in clusters. So so we gotta keep a close eye out for them.
0: It sounds exactly like the problem of, of earthquakes. Right. And when I talked to a seismologist earlier on this show, it was like, Yeah, you know, we can we can try to forecast these events and we can get a statistical measure of how often they will come but we can't predict exactly when they will occur exactly and there's also no defense against an earthquake that's like, right we can't stop it from <laughs> happening and now you're telling me that there is a similar kind of magnitude of devastation that could occur from from the sky from right. the sun that's right that's that's um how does that make you feel <laughs>
1: um I'm like a little nervous because like earthquakes and like many other natural disasters they're not defensible but we can be resilient to them they require forethought and they require coordination and, uh, you know, let's be honest, they require money. Like, these problems, we can't fix them, we can't solve them, we can't prevent them, but we can mitigate them through the judicious use of money. I want to believe that we'll get to a place where Earth is the paradise that we see in next generation, and part of that is Earth has its defenses and it has its weather sorted out, and it has its citizens sorted out through, again, the use of resources and what we would call money. And I get worried that you know, that's a long ways in the future. That is the greatest fiction in the science fiction that is Star Trek, that, that we have come together as a species for our own common self-good.
0: That's a fantastic, another very fantastic perspective that you've brought here, that the, the greatest fiction in Star Trek is not the wild advances in technology and computing power and mm-hmm. warp drive transporters, but that human society has come together for the greater good. Mm-hmm. And, um, and hopefully that comes true. I hope so. Yeah. And it's your science that is going to help us at least understand what we must do mm-hmm. to approach that future. And so let's talk about how you actually study solar flares yeah. or stellar flares. So you use these really cool spacecraft called Kepler and TESS mm-hmm. to observe and understand the the flares of other stars. Can you briefly describe how those spacecraft work and how you use that data to understand the flares of other stars?
1: Yeah, so the Kepler and now the TESS mission, uh, TESS is an acronym for the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Uh, These are NASA missions, so publicly funded missions, whose stated goal uh, are to find, hopefully not too strange, new worlds. Their goal is to find planets around other stars, and they do this using the transit method. So This is the method where a planet will move in front of its star. If the geometry is just right, the planet will move in front of its host star very briefly in its orbit, and we will see a small decrease in the amount of light. The star will get slightly fainter for an hour or so, um, and if it's an Earth-like planet going around a Sun-like star in an Earth-like orbit, then for an hour or two, you will see a tiny dip in the light of the star once a year. But you don't know how long that orbit is, how long that year is, and and you don't know exactly how long that dip will be. And so you have to look with an unblinking eye. And so you have to take pictures of these stars. In the case of Kepler and TESS, they do it every 30 minutes. Uh, And you do that for as long as you can. So Kepler did it for four years for a small patch of sky. TESS is doing it for a month Roughly a month for almost the entire sky, so Tess will find lots of very short-period planets, and then we'll find single transits for lots of longer-period planets, which we'll come back and we'll try to reobserve uh, with follow-up missions. Whereas Kepler was all about trying to find three dips, so three years worth of data at least uh, for Earth-like planets. So complementary missions. So so these are these are really fascinating missions, which have found thousands of new planets around thousands of stars, but that geometry is rare. And so you've got to look at a lot of stars to find that, that perfect alignment where the planet will move exactly in front of its star. In the meantime, you have to look at hundreds of thousands of stars with an unblinking eye. And the stars themselves are doing all kinds of fun and exciting things, like having flares, like having star spots. These things are pretty common. And so we have years and years of data on these stars where people were hoping to find planets. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But in the meanwhile, we get to pick up all the extra data essentially for free, where we're getting incredible, we call them light curves, these are time series measurements of the stars over many years, uh, which become the best data set to date to do statistics of flares and other phenomena like binary stars and uh, star spots,
0: Cool cool things like that. Awesome. So there's a lot of hype these days about... Earth-sized planets around these very small, dim red stars that we call (coughs) M-dwarfs, and um, you've used your data sets to determine that M-dwarfs are actually very active. That means Mm. they give off lots and lots of flares. Can you tell me a little bit more about why that's the case and how this might impact the habitability of those Earth-sized planets around these M-dwarfs?
1: Yeah, so... M-dwarfs um, are what we, the classification we call little stars, stars that are half the size of the sun and smaller. So it's the bottom end of the mass spectrum. A uh, sun is a G-type star. Through strange coincidence of physics, the M-dwarfs, though they're very small, are much more active. Uh, and this is because the stars are much more turbulent inside. So, that, so we think about what we call convection, uh, like a pot of boiling water. The outer layers of the sun are convective, uh, are turbulent. Um, And the smaller you get, the deeper that convection reaches into the star. And so an M dwarf is either mostly or entirely convective. So all the way down essentially to the core, uh, or just above the core, all the way up to the surface, you have this big pot of turbulent, almost boiling plasma. That turbulence with the plasma causes huge amounts of magnetic fields. Uh, And that's why these M-dwarfs are incredibly magnetically active, because the entire pot is bubbling and boiling, and so this magnetic plasma is moving around and creating all kinds of violent and interesting flare activity. I mean, this has gone back to, like, the 1940s, that these M-dwarfs have been known as being incredible flare stars. So they produce lots of flares, and so for me, that's great. they become great data sets to look at lots of flares, good statistics, you know, thousands of flares occurring over many years. It's great. But if you had to live there, you might find that less than great. So there are very like complicated, convoluted, maybe even is maybe a pessimistic way of putting it, uh, workarounds. Well, maybe the planet has a strong magnetic field that might deflect these flares. Maybe it has a very thick atmosphere and it can absorb the flare. Shields up! <laughs> right, right. Like People are basically con- concocting models where the planets might have their own sort of shields. Um, but then then you're starting to look at a planet that's very much unlike Earth. So, so I would say, professionally speaking, I'm a bit pessimistic about the opportunity for advanced life to live around these very, very small stars.
0: Alright, let's talk about the most famous solar flare in all of Star Trek. Yeah. It's, it's one that happens at the beginning of Every single Star Trek Voyager episode. Yeah. Um, So I wanted to know the depiction of that flare. Do you think that's that's accurate? Yeah, I think, and I think
1: I think I remember reading that they based the uh, the visuals Mm -hmm. for that on on actual NASA data on the sun. So I think they actually, I don't think it's actually um, like SOHO data from the SOHO spacecraft, but I think they based it on an actual coronal mass ejection that came off the sun. I love that depiction because. It's almost like a, a boat going through water. That like they have several depictions like this with Voyager. Voyager traveling through things in outer space, which look very much like ripples in water. And I, I think that's very like aesthetically pleasing. And it reminds me a lot of the Parker Solar Probe, which NASA launched last year, uh, whose goal is to actually fly through the sun's corona or outer outermost atmosphere. So it will be very much like that. So Voyager was an exploratory science vessel, and I think it would basically just be the giant version of the Parker Solar Probe. It'd be flying through these things, it'd be flying through nebula, it'd be flying through rings, and its whole job would be to measure particle densities, magnetic field strengths, if there is flows in the particles, if there is waves, uh, magnetic hydrodynamics, MHD waves we call them, if there are interesting waves moving through these uh, ejections. But one has to imagine that uh, it can't be a very pleasant experience for the starship to fly that close to a star. And so I do find it a little odd. Why would they fly that expensive brand-new starship that close to a star when they could just throw a probe through it? It does seem like probes are often used in Star Trek. And so I, I always found it a little odd that they, they would fly Voyager that close. So I think that's a little unusual. And, and then a good example of this is, if you remember back to Next Generation, and I think it's it's in Redemption Part 2, where Worf goes back to hang out with his brother. He wants to become a true Klingon. So he goes and hangs out with his brother Kern who's getting up to no good. buckling. Transfer auxiliary power to shields. And so they're flying around being chased by a couple other At Klingon you know. birds of prey. And Captain Kern is piloting the ship, and Worf is the first officer. We cannot win. We must withdraw. Shield your place. And to, to get the other two birds of prey off their tail, they fly right up against a star.
0: New course 307 Mark 275. But, sir, that takes us dangerously close to the gas.
1: We are entering the star's corona. We will reach the full sphere in 30 seconds.
0: Stand by to warp on my command. Set course 250 Mark 015. Oh! failing our temperature exceeding design limit
1: And then Kern punches it and hits the warp drive right against the surface of the star, inducing some kind of solar flare, which then burps out from the star and destroys the chasing to birds of prey. And I, I love that because it suggests that the it suggests lots of interesting things about what the warp drive is capable of and what happens when you <laughs> punch it, which is maybe too speculative. but I love that the star is still like the biggest baddest thing like. A flare coming off that star would just, just totally knock out and blow up without any problems to two birds of prey. Uh, and so I do worry about, like, what must have Voyager been, been like exposed to if, yeah. it, if it actually did that fly through.
0: Well, let's do a thought experiment. Sure. You're now a science officer on the starship Voyager. Right. And you are trying to pitch to Captain Catherine Janeway. Mm why you should fly through this solar flare. What kinds of measurements, what what kind of science (laughs) would you be saying, look, we we absolutely need to do this, um, and we need to risk the ship's safety so that we can get this brilliant data?
1: So I think, and I think this only occurs, so we don't actually ever see anything about the star they're flying by. We don't know which star it is. So there's only two good reasons I can think we would do this. The first is if it's our own sun, and it's like, 4th of July parade kind of thing where Voyager's flying through this thing just as like a beautiful demonstration of like the new shields or something like that. It's like a tech demo or it's like a patriotic thing. And that's <laughs> cool and I think that'd be it'd be, it'd be awesome and spectacular when it would make good television in the 24th century. Um, the other reason would be if this is some kind of very exotic star worth studying because at this point I mean in our point in history we're flying the Parker Solar Probe into the Corona. We're going to be flying other spacecraft there someday. Again there's no reason to take a human Occupied spaceship and flight that close, clearly as Kern demonstrated, that it's very dangerous. So it's only worth doing if this is a very exotic and rare and interesting kind of star. and So we don't know anything about it. We don't know if this is part of some kind of unusual binary star system, or if this is a particularly active star, or if this is the largest flare that's ever been seen to be going off, and the starship is lucky enough to be close enough, because again, these are random events, you don't know when they're going to happen. And so that's, I think, the pitch to to Captain Janeway. Look, we are lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time to see this extraordinary flare about to pop off. We've got to go fly through it because the amount of data we'll get and we'll collect will be unmatched. And so I think using the whole, whole suite of instruments that will be available on Voyager, we're going to be taking magnetic field measurements. We're going to be taking particle densities. We want to see what are the particles. So we're actually going to be doing particle analysis. So we'll be seeing, are these just beta particles? Are these alpha particles? Are these just electrons that are flying. We want to know exactly what the composition of that flare is. We want to know exactly what the composition of the beam. So here's the real science nugget. Is it an electron beam? Is it a proton beam? What is the beam that is impacting the surface of the star? That is something we haven't been able to actually measure yet experimentally. So I think that would be very cool. So basically all the sensors, all the science stations would be going wild. You'd be taking images in optical X-ray radio wavelengths. You'd be trying to study this in every possible wavelength of light conceivable that voyager would be would be doing
0: that sounds like a real show and again you know it's like this this has to be a really special type of star Mm -hmm. for us to risk the beautiful brand new intrepid class starship voyager (laughs) uh with 150 lives on it but i believe it's going to be worth it so (laughs) i think
1: so yeah i mean clearly in the 24th century people are still entertained by the beauty and the majesty of what the cosmos are capable of so You know, if for no other reason than strapping a GoPro to the front of Voyager and flying through this thing, Mm -hmm. it would still be pretty tremendous.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of GoPros, in the first episode of season two of Star Trek Discovery, they have these Mm. cameras that they just like pop out of the starship. And it's like they've got telescopic capabilities, Mm -hmm. which is kind of cool to see because we've never actually seen where the images like, what the mechanical device is that is recording the images that, you know, gets displayed on the screen. Right. So it's just awesome to see these cameras just pop out of the hull and start taking pictures. And this is in the context of Discovery chasing one of the seven red bursts that have mm-hmm. popped up around the galaxy, and they <coughs> warped into this uh, crazy maelstrom of, of debris and asteroids, and they're trying to seek out this... Uh, dark matter asteroid with a crashed Federation ship on it, and then all of a sudden a pulsar appears <laughs> out of nowhere right. and they, they're, they're going to impact this pulsar. So it's a, it's a crazy mess of all sorts of space phenomena that they're encountering and one of them is a pulsar, which is a, is a very special kind of star, mm-hmm. and since you study stars, Jim, I thought I'd ask you what exactly is a pulsar?
1: Yeah, a pulsar is a special kind of neutron star and a neutron star is the remnant core of a massive star that has died. So the most massive stars, when they die, they explode and they leave behind as a black hole. But that's only for the most massive stars. For still fairly massive stars, so think five times bigger than our sun, something like that, when they die, they probably produce some kind of supernova. And then instead of a black hole, the remnants of the core will collapse And there's so much mass in that core that when it collapses in on itself, uh, no longer supported by fusion and the processes that are going inside of the core that keep the star shining bright, the core implodes on itself uh, and is collapsed down so tight that all the atoms are smashed together and being supported neutron to neutron. So you've got this big ball essentially of neutrons. So a white dwarf is the same idea, but it's being supported by electrons. So um, the neutrons are much denser in the atom, and so the neutron star is much smaller than the white dwarf. So you've got something with roughly the mass of the sun, which would be about the core mass of a, of a massive star. Something about the mass of a sun compressed into a size of a city, something maybe 10 or 20 kilometers across. So it's an incredibly dense environment, incredibly compact. And when it does that, like a figure skater... Who is pulling their arms in as they spin they spin up faster and faster and so as you bring that mass in towards the center the neutron star can spin incredibly rapidly and when they do get incredibly rapidly spinning you get a pulsar and a pulsar is just a neutron star which is shining and it appears to have this little pulsing beam that spins in and out of you like a lighthouse spinning every mm, millisecond again something the size of a city the mass of a star and spinning every couple of milliseconds, which is just a completely wild environment. Um, and there's some wild physics that cause this thing to be beamed. We call it relativistically beamed, which is why it looks like a pulse, why you get this little flashlight or lighthouse beam that spins around. So it is at the truly the most extreme end of physics, where you've got relativistic forces acting at unbelievable scales through timescales that are very difficult to measure. It's a totally wild environment. Definitely something that you don't want to crash into. You don't want to be anywhere near this thing. This thing would be horrible to be near.
0: Well, luckily, Michael Burnham and company evade the pulsar and go on in their journey, searching for Spock. Hmm. And later on in season two, we do find Spock. That's right. And we find him a completely broken, emotional, and very angry man.
1: Yeah, and and wearing a very big beard, which I I have mixed (laughs) feelings about.
0: So... What kinds of emotions did that raise in you to see such a classic character on Star Trek behave in a very different way?
1: It's a big risk as a storyteller, I think, to bring back a beloved and iconic character like this, which has had already a couple portrayals. And as a fan, I have such mixed feelings. We, we Leonard Nimoy died not so long ago. And so I think the portrayal of Spock has to be done with care. You know, just out of respect. Out of respect for a Lifetime's performance of that character. But one of the beautiful things about Spock is because he's half-human, half-Vulcan, he was always the lens by which we viewed the otherworldliness and otherness and the strangeness of alien cultures. He was put in the story for us to try to understand what other life must be like and, and what the struggles must be like in dealing with other people. And why that struggle was important. And and so Spock plays such an important role in reflecting our own humanity back at us. Michael Burnham is a similar lens, but she's a human, so it's the other way around. She's a human who was raised by Vulcans. And so there's an interesting story in terms of in terms of loss and, and, and being a fish out of water that that she's dealing with, which is interesting and complementary to Spock, which I like. But what do you do with Spock now? You have to you bring him back and and he's very angry, and so, I don't know. I, I, I'm really curious to see where they go mm-hmm. with this. I guess that's what I would say. I'm very curious. I think it's been an interesting story so far. It takes a lot of guts to retell and to redefine such a beloved character, and I, I respect that. I respect the, the, the amount of uh, moxie it takes to, <laughs> to put that on the screen. Uh, it's pretty cool. But the beard, I think, is interesting. They, they make reference to it in one of the previous episodes where she asks if he thinks the beard is working. Yeah, Your podcast viewers may not know. The listeners may not know. I, I have been wearing a full beard for many years now, and it's something that I enjoy and, and uh, am a big supporter of beards. But it's so weird to watch. The only other Vulcan I could think of with a beard was Cybok, mm-hmm. uh, Spock's half-brother, who has yet to be introduced. I hope in, he is. In, I, I keep wondering if they're going to bring Cybok in. And Cyborg has some problems, and the beard has always been on film, at least in the Star Trek universe. Other than Riker, the beard has been something that has been a storytelling tool by which you see somebody uh, either disheveled or not at their peak. Riker was the only person I could think of who wears a beard, and wears it because he is feeling confident and, you know, whatever, stylish. And...
0: Not a big deal, but just wanted to point out that Cisco has a beard too.
1: You know, the old the old trope was that in the mirror universe, Spock had a goatee mm-hmm. because he was bad. And so, like, the, the mirror version of people, the bad version of people are the ones that are wearing the facial hair, which I've always, as a man with facial hair, I've always disliked that trope. And so I liked that Riker wore a beard and, and he was good. And so, you know, they're playing back to old Star Trek tropes and Spock has a beard because he's completely disassembled emotionally and mentally and... I will be curious to see how quick he shaves it back to uh, his readiness when he goes back to duty and serves on the Enterprise again. Will we at least get him to say, I am back to my fully logical, totally emotionless self, but I have to admit, I
0: miss the beard. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Much to think about there in terms of uh, <laughs> facial hairstyling. Yeah. So yeah, you made reference to that episode where M- Michael says... Do you really think the beard is working? (laughs) In that episode, we had a lot of nostalgia. It opened with clips from the very first pilot episode of Star Trek. I love that. That was just so nostalgic for me. I think I screamed out when when (laughs) when that happened. I was like, oh my God, what is happening? Like, I can't believe this is actually the way that they went with it. And it was so brilliantly done. It was... Probably my second favorite opening of any Star Trek episode right after the the Cassini images that yeah. came at the beginning of the first episode of the second season. Yeah. So this was this was absolutely astounding. What did you think of the return to Talos Four?
1: I loved it. I had seen the original series episode, but it's it's probably been fifteen years since I had seen that episode and so it was only sort of a vague memory and I loved the pilot being put back in and being brought back into Canon as a piece of the actual history of what uh, Pike and Spock must have been through. And I thought they, you know, I think, I think Talos IV is a fun and amusing place, the singing flowers and things that, you know, they, they made a lot of really great nods. This is not the first time that Star Trek has made nods back to itself, self-referentially, especially back to the original series. DS9 famously did it. Enterprise did it with some mixed results, I think, with how it decided to address the Klingons. Uh, and their genetic heritage, and their genetic lineage. Um, I think this is a brilliant way to do it. I, I really thought it was a smart way to do it. It's just just embrace it. Just don't even blink at it. Just put the old clips up there as if they are exactly a log out of Christopher Pike's own reports. And, and don't even worry about the fact that the art style is slightly different. Whatever. like Just, mm-hmm. just go right in. I thought it was brilliant. I think it was, it was very bold. And I think it contributes to why Discovery is going to be one of the, I think, one of the foundational series going forward, they've just been really bold about defining their own technology, their own rules, their own pacing, uh, their own film style, their own you know photography style of the show, while at the same time clearly now being unafraid of embracing the past and embracing the historical record of Star Trek. And so I think and I hope that we see more series in the future come out of it that take up the art style and the, and the techniques that Discovery has laid down.
0: I'm 100% with you there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been brilliant. So in the episode that came out most recently as yeah. of the recording of this podcast, we get an episode that is very centered around the character Arium. Yeah. Um, the <sighs> yeah. augmented human who is hacked because she has technological addendums to herself and right. you, you can hack technology and this hearkened back to you know data and the doctor and every mm-hmm. once in a while there's an episode where something goes wrong with them or they're mm-hmm. infiltrated by some bug or alien that is screwing up their systems or seven of nine or seven of nine yeah. uh and then Ariam in this episode ends up spoiler alert to anybody who hasn't seen this uh episode yet go back and watch it first uh, but she dies yeah and uh it was a very emotional scene But I wondered if they actually did enough in terms of preparing us for these turns of events because, you know, like, Arium's always been there in the background and she's technically, I think, some kind of navigator for the spore drive that she's sort Mm -hmm. of the liaison when the captain says, black alert, he, he orders Arium to do that. And so Arium does the black alert and then Stamets is down in engineering, getting hooked up to the engine. Um... But she's sort of this periphery character. And then the choice to have Arium perish in this episode, I just wonder, for you, Mm -hmm. did they do enough backstory to make you actually feel the full impact of this death? Or or was it more like, oh, that character who's sort of always been in the background just so happened to be hacked, and all of a sudden we learn that, oh, she's friends with Tilly she's dead and yeah. like that's it you know what, what did you think
1: i think you're hinting at exactly the problem with that episode in, in terms of storytelling is we're given very little emotional incentive to care about ariam other than just kind of gawking at her and wondering about her up until that point and then they give us everything at once like here's her whole backstory here's her name because i actually wasn't clear on it i know they'd said it but i wasn't clear on it here's her name here's her backstory here's the deal with the cybernetic thing and then she's gone uh, and then wrapped up in that, I'm going to I'm gonna be the nerd who says, I think there's a big plot hole here. Why didn't they just beam her out of outer space the second she got ejected? Like, tell me that you couldn't have beamed her out of the Section 31 headquarters because of shielding, but as soon as you ejected her in outer space, before she froze to death, why couldn't you have had the transporter ready right, to, and- to snatch her up and put her in sickbay and make her better?
0: And that happened in uh, the first season, right, where Michael hides... The defiance data files in uh, Ash Tyler beams them out into space, and the discovery's right there to just
1: just pluck them up up. like this transporter. It's a thing. I think that's a big that's a big plot hole. That I mean, whatever, right? Like whatever, it's a plot hole. But that's not a hard hole to fill. I mean, all you had to do was say that there were still mines in the area that were in in You know, it would have taken one line of dialogue to have shut me up. (laughs) Um, Here's my. Here's my bold prediction. We still have not found out the true origin of the like squid probe that attacked them. So there is some kind of advanced technological mind at work from the future that modified the probe that then attacked the shuttlecraft a couple episodes ago. That presence also hacked Arium uh, through her eyeballs. And who's to say, right, in Star Trek, villains rarely die once. So who's to say that we've actually seen the last of Arium? They're going to gonna stick her in a torpedo casing and fire her off. That means they lose track of the body. It's a bunch of technologists floating around. And if this future probe thing gets a hold of her, we may see zombie Arium again. I'm just saying mm-hmm. we may not have seen the end of it. But I do think it was a little rushed. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a little much to give us all that at once. They could I think they should have spread that out throughout the season.
0: All right, section 31. Does it surprise you how central they are to this story arc? I guess what I'm
1: surprised is how well-known they are. Yeah. That every portrayal of Section 31 previously has been that it is incredibly underground, incredibly well-hidden. In DS9, when we're introduced to Section 31, it's like, Section 30, there is no Section 31. That's not, it's not a thing. And then people speak of it with very casual nature, like it's uh, yeah, the FBI. Like, I mean... I don't know any FBI agents, but I'm aware that it's a thing. And I know they've got an office somewhere in town. I'm a little surprised at how well-known it is, um, but I enjoy it. Like, it plays very much to our, uh, our current time and, like, the role of the government and the role of, like, intelligence agencies and how much they can be tra- – I, th- I think it's, like, very timely. And so I'm enjoying that aspect of it.
0: I always thought that the scariest part of Section 31 is that they didn't answer to anybody. Yeah. Like they were always in the shadows. But here in Discovery we we sort of see that they're technically bossed around by Starfleet Admirals. Right. And sort of a division of Starfleet that does sort of shady things but is still part of the greater infrastructure of the Federation.
1: Maybe the events of the Discovery time will push them underground, such that by you know, a century later when we're at DS9 they have become completely forgotten. Exactly. The, the, the casual officer won't know anything about them. Right, right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, Jim, besides what we've been talking about so far, yeah. what would you say is your favorite thing about Star Trek Discovery Season 2?
1: My favorite thing about Star Trek Discovery is the fact that Star Trek is back in an episodic format. I really feel like Star Trek does its best work in a weekly episode where there's some tension and some release. Um, and I just, I really think they've made some clever new bold decisions about how they're telling the star trek story about the people about the integration of the sort of idea of lower decks tilly engineering the people stories The, the stories of the people have been i think much more broad and much more interesting and i think that's that's been much needed star trek's needed fresh faces and fresh perspectives on what it's like to be in the 23rd century and they're delivering and more so in this season than in the first season
0: okay one last question what is one thing from previous star treks Mm. that you want them to bring back for star trek discovery something that we haven't seen so far so like talos 4 you know that they brought that back and that was so brilliantly done what is one thing that they haven't done yet that you want to see in star trek discovery
1: ryza Ooh. I want to see people go on vacation. <laughs> Not necessarily Ryza and all the implications that it has. Is sometimes it's portrayed as Sin City. But what I like about Ryza is it's another part of exploring the human condition. Or, similar to that, Earth. Take us back to Earth a little bit more. I love in DS9 when we get to see Cisco's Restaurant. Yeah. Um, I think that portrayal of like... There's some complicated story there about why people are still being chefs in the 24th century. Take us home. I want to see discovery come home and see what the human condition looks like in the burnham verse in the michael burnham era and with that new art style i want i want to see home i think that's going to be a good that's going to be a good element we're going to see it my prediction we'll see
0: it well thank you for joining me on strange new worlds jim it was a long time coming yes this was a lot of fun And I think we'll just have to have you back very soon, you know, once season two wraps up, get your thoughts on that. And you can talk to me more about the other projects that you're doing. I know that you have done some cool SETI work as well. Yeah, SETI work's coming. So so
1: that's going to be an exciting thing.
0: That concludes episode 65 of Strange New World. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Jim Davenport and learned something new about stars and stellar flares. Jim is a really cool guy, and if you haven't done so yet, you should totally check out his astro-vlog. I've put links in the show notes to his YouTube channel and the video that I was in where we talked about, what else, science and Star Trek. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeY, that's M-I-Q-U-A-I. And you can follow Jim, too, at J-R-A Davenport. And while you're at it, clicking away at things on the web, why not give Strange New Worlds a rating or a review? I'd really appreciate it. Live long and prosper, everyone. And I'll see you out there. You have a Red Angel prediction? Oh, oh
1: yeah. Well, I want to know who you think it is. Uh, I think it's Giorgio. Giorgio. I think it's Captain Giorgio. Wow. Who do you think it is?
0: Well, I really want it to be Jean Luc Picard.
1: Yeah, will be some kind of Picard tie-in. Yeah,
0: that's really what I want, but it probably won't happen. Uh, C- Captain Giorgio, but she died.
1: Nobody dies once. <laughs> <laughs> They're giving us so many suggestions that Giorgio knows something is more dynamic than we understand. And there is something special about Michael. We learned that in the last last episode that, that the connection is Michael, not Spock. Yeah. Who would care? It's that or it's, or it's Michael's parents. Maybe it's Michael's mom.
0: Oh. Giorgio's her,
1: her surrogate mother. Right, right. I think it's Michael's mother in some form. And I, I think it's Giorgio, but maybe not. Maybe it's her actual mother.
0: Oh my God. How did he know? I'm going to scan Jim's Officer Tachyons tomorrow because he's got to be from the future.